in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from right here in Pittsburgh, Chad Robinson. How you doing, Chad? In-person celebration. All right, and we have three hosts yep. on today. We're bringing, we're coming at you with Dustin Melbardis. How you doing, Neat. sir? I am doing so good. I am so ready for this episode today. I'm happy to be here. From deep in the heart of Texas, nothing says British movie like Texas. <laughs> like 105 degrees, like a barbecue. Oh yeah. All right. So before we kick off this, let's talk about who your favorite British actor is. Dustin, why don't you take this one first? This was easy for me. It is not just my favorite British actor. It's my favorite actor. I used to say favorite character actor, but I think I just like everything he does so much. that It's Gary Oldman. I think my favorite role of his was uh, Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg from The Fifth Element. Oh, that's a great <laughs> choice. Obviously, uh, Dracula. I, I really liked Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He's Commissioner Gordon, the Sirius Black. He's in so many things I like. True Romance like was a good one. In them all, true romance, uh, immortal beloved. But I was when I first watched that, I didn't really understand it. I'll have to go check it back out again. Luckily, it's older than ten years old. Yeah, yeah. And hey, we did true romance, so check that episode yeah. out. And we did JFK earlier this year, which is another Oldman movie. And Adam mm-hmm. Savage from MythBusters actually gave Gary Oldman a replica of that gun. So Gary Oldman was so excited. That's sweet of him. That's awesome. Yeah. Chad, favorite British actor. I think I'm going to go with Rowan Atkinson. I love me some Mr. Bean. <laughs> I, I really do. I love Rat Race. Just whenever he shows up, I'm happy. He's weaning. He's yes. weaning. Chad's favorite British actor. He's weaning. Yes. All right. Uh, that's a great choice. Uh, he does crack me up. I'm going to say mine. So I think this, I'm going to caveat this. This guy is Scottish, but I'm going to do this because I like Sean Connery so much. He's my favorite Bond, and if you're my favorite Bond, then you're well, you're you're miles, you're miles away, or sorry, you're miles ahead of everybody else. I think you mean kilometers. Kilometers, yes. Yes. I need to drive on down the left side of the road to our next question, though. What's the last movie you saw, Dustin? I was talking to a friend last week about some Wes Anderson movies, and I rewatched the Darjeeling Limited, uh, set in India about a... couple of brothers that's wrong three brothers on a train yep and chad uh chad do you think you would enjoy this 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 title <laughs> my immediate thought was was it billed as a comedy but yet was slow unfunny and depressing at moments yeah yeah it sounds like wes anderson <laughs> yeah it, it, it is a wes anderson movie for sure wonderful i will skip it <laughs> yep <laughs> Well, this movie, we're going to cover every movie someday on this podcast, so it's only a matter of time. Uh, it's only a matter of time. I, I will be sick, whatever day. <laughs> Make sure to not miss our Baby's Day Out episode, though. Yes. <laughs> Chad, did you watch a horror movie as usual for this one? 
I, for, for your last movie? I did. One day I'm just going to say like Gigli just to mess with you, but that's that's much worse than a horror movie. That's, that's terrifying. Yes. Uh, I watched the last Fear Street. It's Fear Street 1666. So that series, it's getting a lot of praise, but it winds up essentially being Riverdale with a side of horror. It's like a teenage soap opera with horror. Didn't work for me. Teenagers out there listening to us, you'll love it. All right. Okay. Well, my last movie that I saw was Lincoln from 2012. Okay. With Daniel Day-Lewis. That's a Spielberg movie. Yeah. And uh, it's an Academy Award winner, too. So uh, if that's not enough to sell you on it, it's good. <laughs> I said it's good, too. So there you go. Wow. And a fine automobile. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's roomy. I need Matthew McConaughey's opinion on it. All right. All right. I just need cruise control. I just watched the movie because I like it. <laughs> um, so, oh, that became Forrest Gump. <laughs> You're Matthew McConaughey, tail, dovetailed into Forrest Gump. Lots of DVD store. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> a, you never know what you're going to get. Tune in for Russell doing bad impressions. Here's our British movie. That needs to be its separate Patreon tier. Yeah, yes. yeah. Chad, what movie is it we're doing today? We are doing 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Thank goodness, finally. All right. So Monty Python comes out, as Chad mentioned, in 1975. It, it has a made for a small budget of only $400,000, which is, that's pretty meager even for the day. It grosses about $5 million, so it has a nice return, but its box office numbers are fuzzy, and 1975 is beyond the box office mojo numbers, so I cannot tell you where it placed in the box office. So anybody out there who wants to tell me, you can tell me, but I can tell you the number one movie from 1975 was Jaws. you want to hear more about Jaws, check out episode 91 from the Retro Movie Roundtable for yes, Jaws. promotion. So, yes. So... IMDb gives the Monty Python and the Quest of the Holy Grail, or and the Holy Grail, an 8.2. Rotten Tomatoes critics give it a 97%. They love it. And the audience score is just a little behind at 95%. So uh, Gene Siskel, no awards here, but Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune gave the film two and a half stars, saying, It felt like it contained 10 minutes of very funny moments and 70 minutes of silence. Too many of the jokes took too long to set up, and a trait shared by both Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. I guess I prefer Monty Python in chunks to its original television format. I just... There are so many words in that review that I just kind of want to fight Gene Siskel. I was going to say, I didn't... Uh, I normally don't like to bring on these uh, reviews from, from the people. If I do, I, I favor Leonard Moulton, but uh, uh, this one was just too bad not to bring up. It's like the Luke Skywalker line from the new trilogy... Amazing. Every word you just said was wrong. <laughs> you lost me at you lost me at the it's a bad trait shared by Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Right? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> if only every movie could be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dustin, what about you? What was your first time with Monty Python and the Holy Grail? This is kind of a cool way of thinking about it, is I can't remember a time in my life where I this movie wasn't a part of it. Like, I, I don't remember the first time because I feel like its presence has always been with me, referring back to however many minutes of jokes that Gene Siskel wants to say. I've always remembered it, and it's always been something I could go back to, and I think everybody in my life, we've shared these references. Uh, so it's it's been a part for as long as I can remember. Wow. Yeah, so it's been a part of his life. For his... Were you born in Castle Anthrax by chance? <laughs> Castle. Uh... 
I mean, it's a terrible name, but I mean, it's really not that bad of a place. They have a grill-shaped beacon. That's right. Uh, so punish for it? lighting the beacon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been ever-present for you. I take it it's holding up for you and you love it. And coming back to it today, though, what was it like studying it a little bit closer? This was new to... I think it was something that I could have on, and even just by the musical cues or by some of the dialogue, I can just envision the scene. I probably could have prepared for this episode without rewatching it, but certainly, certainly held up. Uh, if I were to read more reviews like that, I might try to attempt to pick apart some of the things in this movie, but it's just, it's just comforting for me. It's just been there for so long, but certainly for me that the humor's there. I think maybe because this movie has kind of shaped my own sense of humor. It's, it's that deep in my core. Amazing. So, uh, high praise here. Chad, what about you? What was your first time with Monty Python and the Holy Grail? The same friend and good friend to have in your childhood that introduced me to Star Wars introduced me to Monty Python. So that guy is awesome. He's forever awesome in my book. I love the movie. It was probably around nine or ten, I would say, for the movie. And man, unlike Dustin, I've seen it countless times. I I don't have as much success sharing it with people. Um, really? Yeah, I, I have hit a lot of just, I don't get it, notes from people, particularly my wife. That's one of the more memorable reactions. She, okay. is, she is not a silliness fan. Well, this is silliness. Yes, yes, this is pure silliness. Yeah. All right. Well, for me, I got to it a little bit later than you guys. I uh, I didn't get to it until my freshman year of college. Wow. And uh, it was one of the very first movies my wife and I watched. It wasn't the first. I think Forrest Gump was the first movie we watched together. But this was, I think, the second movie we watched together, which meant uh, we didn't really watch it very closely. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's true. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so who makes out during Monty Python? Um, <laughs> it's when you know you got somebody who's good. That's when you got. That's when you got a keeper. <laughs> Dude, I didn't know how Reservoir Dogs ended for like five, six years. <laughs> that is an odd, <laughs> odd movie. So, uh, I did not come back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail until I don't know another three years down the road. So late college, I, I did it again, and it was pretty good. I, I got to say, like uh, I had pretty much the whole movie told to me. Yeah. Over the years, by people being around, people like Dustin, um, who it's just so in their in their lexicon that you know it's part of them. So I won't say that that spoiled it by any means, but uh, yeah, I, I did enjoy it, and I haven't seen it in quite some time. So coming back to it today was like, a, oh yeah, I forgot about this. Yeah. So it's nice to come back to it. I picked it up on DVD, and so I I definitely do enjoy it, and I love sketch comedy. I love Saturday Night Live, and I do like Monty Python as well. I've not done great doses of the Flying Circus, but everything I've seen from them I do like. So, yeah. Very good. And uh, coming back... I think I'm in the same boat as you, Russell, is that uh, little bits and pieces of of Flying Circus, and while I remember watching Life of Brian, none of them quite stuck with me like this movie did. Oh, no, I'm not quite there. I like Life of Brian better, I would say. Ooh, hot take. Well, I'm in the same boat with John Cleese on this one. John Cleese said that he feels like their best movie was Life of Brian as well. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I, I, I enjoy this movie. I just enjoy Life of Brian a little bit more. All right. That's fair. Yeah. That's fine. 
Yeah, oh, that's fine. <laughs> All right, I'm. I'm. Chad. Chad looks so disappointed. He's like, <laughs> it's almost like it's almost like the like star stud uh, student who comes home is just like, I got into Stanford, and they're like, mm, that's sorry. Yeah, yeah. should have gone to Yale. Yeah, your brother. Yeah, it's like your brother got into Harvard. <laughs> it's like <laughs> so. Sorry, I only like Life of Brian. All right, so we're going to be back after these messages, and we will spoil Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You've probably had it spoiled for you just an everyday conversation with people, uh, especially if you have friends who are nerds. But uh, if not, then we will be back after these messages. Neat. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back, and we're going to spoil Monty Python and the Holy Grail for you. So if you haven't seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you're going to want to check it out and then listen to the rest of this. Chad, for those who haven't seen it since 1975, do you want to refresh people's memories? Oh, boy, with this one. King Arthur is on a mission to find knights worthy of his round table. He journeys throughout the land with his faithful servant, Patsy, picking up now famous knights such as Lancelot, Bedivere, Robin, and Sir not appearing in this film. Once Arthur finishes his recruitment, he's tasked by God himself to find the Holy Grail. This adventure pits Arthur and his crew against a host of formidable foes, including a three-headed giant, knights with powerful words, Frenchmen, animated black beasts, horny nuns, killer rabbits, and lastly, the Bridge of Death itself. Silliness abounds throughout the adventure until it all comes crashing down on Arthur and his surviving crew as their siege of a castle where the Grail resides is broken up by the modern-day police, who <laughs> falsely arrest the gang for the murder of a famous historian who is recounting their tale. Unfortunately, the inept police force who arrest the wrong perpetrators could not be sacked, as the people who would be in charge of their sacking had previously been sacked. The end. Very well, very, very well. All right, and then there was much rejoicing. Yay. Yay. So, we have a loose plot here. (laughs) This is more of a framework to insert a series of fun character sketches, which is something Monty Python is really good at. I feel like this is something you actually see with road trip comedies often as well. You have these separate elements, but then you kind of create something to link them together. In this case, instead of a road trip, it's a quest for the Holy Grail. It allows for a lot of funny things to happen and then still kind of stick them together in some kind of cohesive ball. But, of course, they go one step farther and use a book-like format. And then they start breaking the fourth wall, as you mentioned, and talking directly and uh, having external modern day police come back into (laughs) 19, uh, sorry, and and 923. Um, So it's a a wild ride. It is, as Monty Python would say, something completely different. Yes. Yeah. Dustin, 
we think about the structure and I would say plot, but it's more about how it's structured, really. It's delightful and easy, uh, I think, to accept that you are going to get these sketch style scenes uh, where there's one joke about it and they're going to stick with it for anywhere between three minutes and ten minutes. And then you get to move on. So you get to, uh, in between each scene, uh, you, you get to like reset. Sometimes that reset comes along with a silly animation. Uh, sometimes it comes from like an intermission. Yes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> That's right. Flash, flashing lights, uh, the weather, jumping up and down. Uh, it's, I, I think it's really easy for, uh, I believe, when the quest is given it's just god shows up so this is your mission and that's it uh they they all believe that's their mission and they just go no real uh conflict there it's just all right we're gonna go do this and then it, as far as introducing more opportunities for these sketches they decide to split up which i think each of the individual knights of the round table uh, on their own personal quests, I think maybe are some of my favorite scenes of the movie. I, the the overall, we'll say, failure to achieve this goal doesn't really matter. You've already had a great time getting to Castle. <laughs> why would why would he write that? He would just say it, right? It's somewhat foreshadowed by there, like when they go, like, "We shall go to Camelot." <laughs> On second thought, let's not. It is a silly place. <laughs> it's just a model. <laughs> it's only a model. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's interesting. I think it's kind of structured into three main acts. Putting the band together. Yes. So like that's the first part where you have Grand Chapman, who's playing King Arthur, going around and collecting his knights. For me, this is the best part of the movie like it's coming out swinging i mean you have the swallows carrying the coconut debate you have to bring out your dead cart you have the king in an unruled land uh like the people who don't know they have a king um <laughs> i didn't vote for you yeah, it's like <laughs> stop talking he's repressing me you see this and uh the black knight battle burn her she's a witch i yes. mean it's just it's on a, perhaps an even unsustainable pace at this part. Like the first part, of it comes out guns blazing. That witch scene, you can see so many different people laughing. Like John Cleese during the long pause. I think it was Eric that winds up biting his sword. And that was to keep from laughing because John Cleese paused for a lot longer than they expected. But you can see Cleese turning away laughing. Just everyone was corpsing on that scene and I love it. Oh, that's very funny. <laughs> uh, so it then turns into a second act where, as Dustin alluded to, the knights then kind of split up and go look for the grail individually. And then you kind of have these more expansive sketches. The sketches are longer. There's a lot more film time taken up for here. Let me let me throw it to you. Chad, Chad do you think this part of the movie works uh, comparison? Like, it's a, it's a change of pace. Oh my goodness, I love it. We get Castle Anthrax with Zoot and Dingo. The horny the Yes, horny the nuns. horny nuns. Yep. You know, the punishment for Zoot. Which, is that, which Lancelot had to rescue uh, Galahad from. Yes, I can handle the peril. No, there's too much. I love that Lancelot <laughs> attempts to stab Zoot with his sword at one point. He's like, back, back. <laughs> my duty gonna... as a knight is to sample as much peril as I can. <laughs> yes. Then... 
Oh, awful, dreadful, naughty Zoot. Yes, the spankings, and then you must spank all of us, and then the oral <laughs> sex. <laughs> He's like, well, maybe I can stay. Yes, and Robin and his minstrels, which sets up another classic joke later on where they, they're they forced to eat Robin's minstrels. But that guy is just great. You know, the brave, brave Sir Robin, and then the he is not afraid to die. He just keeps <laughs> listing terrible things until he gets to, I think it's like he starts to say his penis or something like that. And he's like, that's enough. That's enough. But then the bravely ran away. away. <laughs> no, I didn't. I love that stuff. So, and, and the narrator lets us know those are his favorite minstrels. Yes. <laughs> and Lancelot's scene with the castle is just classic. The, the long sketch of him running endlessly and you just get the drum roll and the guards are just watching him in the distance and it's just overly long but it gets funnier as it goes seeing herbert i yeah he's crashing a wedding that yes for some reason this character has come into it and like he has a son who's being forced to marry against his will because (laughs) well she had large tracts of land that's a compelling argument in (laughs) fairness i mean when you build your castle in a swamp the fourth one by the way the strongest of all of them. Yes. I I just, I could gush about all of this. This part works for me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so again, they go from these really fast, 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 you know, building the band. And that takes up to about 22 minutes. And this is a much larger footprint of the movie. And uh, Dustin, any, any thoughts you have up to this point? Because it's about to go through a third turn. The thoughts I have here are... I, I I was watching it more critically this time, just attempting to do so. When you've seen a movie over 50 times in your life, I'm just guessing at that. But when you've seen it this many times and, and you're kind of used to it, watching it with a more critical eye, I think I was looking to identify the longer running jokes, uh, the things that would come back later, the things that on this watch through I thought, is this tired? I thought to myself, is this a tired joke now? The uh, idea of the, uh, the, the, the filth stackers, the people that didn't know they had a king, yes. the, the filth stackers, um, I have found that that particular scene is kind of used as an internet meme now. People like to use that in reference to like talk about government in some effort to make themselves seem more educated. Uh, like like this, is, this is used like almost as an example, and it, it makes me think like this is tired, but then 45 minutes later, just in passing, those two same people are walking by and you can hear just a little bit of that conversation still going on. I believe his name is Dennis. Yes, um, Dennis and his mom. Dennis and his mom, yeah. Uh, so like, I was looking for, for some of the things I thought, one of, I think the very first joke of the movie, spoken joke, I guess we'll say, is, the, is Arthur trying to get past the conversation about which type of swallow could potentially carry a <laughs> coconut. Or which type of pair of swallows could tether a coconut, uh, d- depending on if they're migratory. And I was trying to look at it critically and be like, is this old to me now? Does it not hold up? Uh, but then you realize that that is maybe the most important like phrase later when they get to the bridge of death. So uh, uh, some of the things that manage to last the whole movie, until we get to this last turn, I suppose, I, I came to appreciate that there is both a slow game and like a fast, short, quick jokes. There, there's there's several layers, and the payoff is better when you're paying attention to it. I think. Man, the swallow thing—they actually physically do it. It's a very quick shot, but Bedivere, oh, Bedivere. when you first 
meet him. He's tossing a swallow with a coconut tied to it. Just out of context. There's no reason for him to be doing that. But it's just like, yes, I appreciate this. This is a man of science. Yes. So uh, uh, the third act, as I was alluding to, the knights reassemble, but then the they break the box. They, they shatter the structure. It's shortly thereafter they meet Tim, the enchanter, who then takes them to the terrible beast of the rabbit. And they go into this cave after using the holy hand grenade to get in there. And the animator dies when, when he's chasing <laughs> them with, the, with his monster. You know, the bridge of death starts to become referential to things that happened in the past, like you said, Dustin, uh, knowingly so. And, you know, the police coming at the very end. Uh, and a second round of more knights and more shrubbery and um, and a second round of French taunting. Another uh, shrubbery. So, yes, it, it's a I would say the third act lags a little bit. And I think I'm going to have to I think I may have to run away while you throw both throw livestock at me. But I think the last third of this movie, I lose my momentum with it. I feel like you were way too confident in pronouncing the enchanter's name. His name is. Tim? <laughs> or the, yeah, there are those that call him Tim? <laughs> he had to be 90% of the film's budget. Like, they just went absolutely nuts with pyrotechnics. It just goes on, zap the hill, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, okay, he's got three and nope, six, nine, whatever. Then he goes full on flamethrower with it. She likes fire. I, yes. I, I love the enchanter, but I, I think I would at least to some degree agree with you that it does lose momentum towards the end which with the end of a movie can have a greater impact on your total enjoyment but i i think it's i can't say it's appropriate but you do have some resolution of some things you have some main characters not make it but I think you also get treated to, uh, you know, the potential end of the quest. You get treated to uh, an incredible shot of the um, the dragon-headed boat across the... I don't know if you'd call that a moat or if that castle ah is actually in the middle of a lake. It is, yeah. I think it's an island, yeah. Yeah. And you do get sort of a, a resolution of the ongoing mystery of the unnamed historian who is slain by that knight riding through, which for a bloody slaying makes me laugh out loud every time (laughs) it's only that whoever that unnamed knight is i assume gets away with it right chad you said they get the wrong guys so um it's you, you do get some resolution some of the things that make it all the way to the third act for instance they do dismount their horses because they're getting spooked, if you remember. <laughs> they're riding their horses up to the the cave. I believe the name of the cave is Karbanag. Yes. And uh, the, the horses are getting a little spooked, as you can hear by the, the, the softening coconut uh, rhythms. And so they dismount the horses, and that's it for them. So, uh, you know, we know that they don't meet uh, a certain type of end. Some of the, the long-running things, m- maybe, maybe it might seem... Like the pace of the end is, you know, is outmatched by the rest of the movie. But maybe that's just because the rest of the movie was just so on fire. Yeah. I mean, people are going to have a problem with the ending. That's been the biggest response of really. But this is a recurring thing with Monty Python. So a bunch of their skits, they would have a character that would come in and he was a police officer. I believe I think he might have been called the colonel or something, but he would break up the skit when it became too silly. 
So this was <laughs> right in line with them. It actually happened because of budget. You know, they did it because they ran out of money. This was financed by Pink Floyd, <laughs> among other people. But I'm fine with it. I I get where you're coming from, Russell. The jokes seem a little more spread out or... I don't want to say rehash, but we are revisiting some of the themes. We're revisiting the Frenchman. We're revisiting the African or European swallow, although that worked for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a good callback. Uh, I, the Bridge of Death was was pretty solid. Yeah, I think I think that was actually probably the standout for me in that last third. I mean, the Rabbit's classic. That's when you get the five, three, sir. Three. His inability to count to three is, <laughs> is definitely enjoyable throughout the movie. They they continue to come back to it. Yes, <laughs> and and yeah, I will say the the enchanter, just the even the mere presence of Sirs Gawain, Ector, and Bors um, yes. at the cave of Karabanug, um, the animated chase scene with the what did you call that month the the black beast the black beast yeah yeah. Brother Maynard, played by Eric Idle, is only present in the third scene. I think they have, as far as memorable, memorable like single lines or characters. I think the Holy Hand Grenade is one of them, and that's only present in that last third. So the the, the last third has a combination of the payoff of some of the long running gags, but it also has the introduction of brand new characters and 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 jokes. I think funnier than Brother Maynard, who merely recalls. Uh, the uh, armaments chapter two verses nine through twenty one. Uh, he has the friar next to him actually recite what's written down in we'll call it the scripture, um, and that <laughs> that that entire that entire run of jokes is is very good. So, so I think some of the more memorable things like the holy hand grenade are are in that last third, which if it needed salvaging or saving, oh, it doesn't need save. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to knock it too much. I had mentioned this like in the first act. They are coming out guns blazing the first 22 minutes of this. Like, I mean, it's not sustainable. I don't think any movie keeps, like, hilarity running at that level, at that pace and density for that long. For for a whole movie. We're going to quote King Arthur in this. You make me sad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, like, there's... I'm I'm giving it... That's not a knock. That's not a diss. I mean, even a movie as dense and laughs as, you know... Gene Siskel's knocking like young Frankenstein are blazing saddles, which are, which are dense and laughs. I mean, they, they can't keep the pace that, that this movie does in the first 20 minutes. And that's not a knock. And so, yeah, they, they, they do. They do a great job. And in fairness, if they had a million dollars more, they still were going to do something off kilter. It was going to be a dreamlike ending. Terry Jones and or sorry, Terry Gilliam said that he doesn't really remember exactly what they planned to do the ending. It didn't really matter because they couldn't do it. But uh, there was going to be a big battle sequence yeah. as part of it. which So would I like to have gotten a big battle? Yeah, but if you think that you're going to get an ending that doesn't make people go, really? I promise you they would have done that anyway. Like that was coming <laughs> regardless yes. of if funds were infinite. So the ending's not really what, what gets me. I mean, when the opening, we've got llamas, we've got a moose, we've moose. got Richard Nixon involved in the opening credits. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, they. you're right. Whatever budget they had, it was probably just going to be spent on fireworks or something. (laughs) 
I did think it was an interesting thing. It was an actual French tactic, part, uh, pelting Arthur and his knights with livestock echoes a relatively modern legend of medieval siege where a fortified southern French castle was said to have been near starvation and the townspeople threw their last food, uh, pelting a besieging army to convince them that uh, the suffering likewise, because they were starving as well, that the town was well stocked with food, so much so that we can throw it at you, and uh, your siege is hopeless, and it worked. They stopped sieging the castle. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure they're aware of the historical background. I think they just (laughs) thought it would be funnier to fling a cow and other things that can make sound effects. Happy coincidence, you're saying? There's a cat at one point. (laughs) Well, they're all well-educated. There are a lot of cats. Yeah, they're they're all Oxford guys. So transitioning into talking about the cast, I mean, we should talk about the pythons. I think it was interesting. Terry Gilliam kind of explained how the python group formed. He was a comedian. And they, he went to work for a comedian named David Frost at a show. He used cheap college labor for a program that was called The Frost Report. And then they also worked together on another one called Don't Adjust Your Television Set. There, Gilliam was met John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Graham Chapman. What a writing room that yeah. this must have been for cheap college labor writing. And, uh, you know, Don't Adjust Your Television Set is just like a kid's show. By the way, this isn't like some high piece of art. And uh, Gilliam at the time was editing a magazine, like, and he wanted to go into TV. And so he brought his ideas in to Don't Adjust Your Television Set, and they bought some of his sketches, and the Pythons didn't like him. They thought he was like an outsider. And uh, they ended up going to work on another sh- uh, show called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And um, they started to gel a little bit more there. And so... Uh, it all came to be that John Cleese had connections at the BBC, and he had an opportunity to create his own show. And the idea for them was what eventually became Monty Python's Flying Circus. And as we mentioned earlier, and several different names kind of came and went, but uh, you know they wanted uh, the BBC kept calling it a circus, so they wanted the name Circus to be in there. So Flying Circus was in there, and John Cleese wanted the name Python in the name just because he thought it was a slimy, slithery. A despicable thing, and Eric Idle suggested they also have, uh, they name it after a slimy agent uh, of theirs, so uh, Monty was in there as well. So That's cool. uh, Monty Python, uh, Flying Circus was born, and Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, and Terry Gilliam, and Michael Palin were a team, and this is their first movie coming together, and Chad, do you have any more experience with the TV show to see what this is like as they've converted to the big screen? Oh, definitely. It's There are familiar callbacks, like I said, of getting two silly things broken up. Probably the most famous one that I can think of is John Cleese with the dead bird at the pet store. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of just outrageous satire. So yeah, this winds up being a challenge for them, I think, because they are in this environment of five to seven minute skits. Whereas now they've got to they've got to do an entire movie. They did fill it up. I I wrote it down. Five hundred and twenty-seven jokes. Forty-two were in the opening credit. So it's a joke every <laughs> ten and a half seconds in this. When wow. you're doing that much comedy, there's going to be stuff that you're just like, okay, that wasn't really funny. Try again. But so many of them land, and just the percent that land for me is impressive. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Dustin, what do you think about the chemistry of these? amazing six comedians 
the only real comparison I can have as a group would not be a full cast like SNL. I think I, I can make I can think of two comparisons, which is maybe the dynamics of the kids in the hall. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, I was also thinking of Broken Lizard. I was going to say Broken Lizard, maybe, but yes. they're not nearly on this level. I don't think they wish they, they were. Not. I love Super Troopers, but yeah, they wish they were. Yeah, right. And I still try to give Club Dread a little bit of credit. I don't Good. know why. No, I love uh, it. But and I I just skipped Beer Fest. But we're not talking about Broken Lizard. The, these guys, I think, um, must enjoy what they do and when like you can you can tell they want to keep working together and like uh, putting together something like this uh you can't have everybody you, you can't have anybody like dissenting to the form of humor that this is from from my experience with the tv show um i'm i'm remembering the the ministry of silly walks i i remember the dead parrot as well <laughs> the dead parrot's uh, pretty funny. Yes. uh yeah and and i just i just think of the the thing about like quick speaking back and forth, um, which happens a lot in this movie as well. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is like a, it's not like a, it's not a tried or or an overused joke. It's something along the lines of, oh, "I've cut your arm off." No, you haven't. Denying <laughs> the reality. Somebody is. That's not right. I bought this parrot. No, you didn't. Uh, yeah, like like just just coming coming back with something like that. Um, I've won this fight. No, how about you? Uh, the the idea that that. They're they're not accepting something. Uh, it must have been like a groupthink idea. You you mentioned that like oh what a writers room just to come up like what's funny. And I think we we from some of the stuff I saw, uh, the American audiences really accepted it. I think that they said it was more popular over here than it was necessarily uh, across the pond. They're really good at saying something unexpected, but in a very fast pace, as if it took them no time to think of it. Obviously, they put thought into what would be a funny joke, and they crafted it. But to your point, Dustin, they have a very good pace. It's it's like it's just right off their cuff, like of like, go away. We've already got a holy grail. Yeah. Like I mean, like they that's a they're... very funny comment, and that's not at all what you're expecting for the situation. But it, it's just so matter of fact, and it's very very quick. And a, a newt. Yeah, exactly. I got better. I got better. <laughs> and like, oh, right, right. Burn her. Um, <laughs> Burn so, her anyway. So they have incredible timing. One of the things that I find is interesting, because I was going to go the opposite direction for group comparisons. The Marx Brothers or the Three Stooges or Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello. These are some of the comedic groups or duos that would you would have in the past. But what you have is such defined roles where Groucho was going to be a smart aleck. Harper was going to be the physical comedy guy. And, you know, they, 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 they were going to do what they were every single time they had defined roles. Monty Python is interesting in that you don't really have that. They're somewhat interchangeable. They're always playing multiple characters. I think Dustin, even before he started recording, said like, hey, sometimes I get a little bit blended up with who's doing what. It's just... Money Python, and it's amazing that they have a brand and how cohesive it all seems. Yeah. I mean, it's not like John Cleese is always the like, oh, he's the angry guy, or like Eric Idle's like, uh, oh yeah, he's the smart Alec guy, or he's the small guy who's gonna like, you know, look funny because he's like Martin Short and he's like tiny and small or whatever. Or, or, like, or Chris Kattan, or Will Ferrell, or a John Belu- Like, like th- there are certain like standouts in an ensemble, and in this yep. ensemble, it's the it it's greater than the sum of its parts. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's sad. Graham Chapman dies early, and um, they 
kind of, I think Terry Gilliam explained it's kind of like the Beatles. When we lost the member, that was it. And sometimes we drift into each other's projects and stuff after that, but it was really a team. And once one, we weren't whole at that point, so there's no bringing it back. And so it's unfortunate. So that's that goes to speak to that. So even though Gilliam said he, he personally felt like he was an outsider, the, these guys were very much uh, a cohesive unit. Gilliam said that there was like a left brain, right brain to Monty Python. John Cleese, Eric Idle, and Graham Chapman were Cambridge educated. He also called them the tall group. Um, <laughs> and Michael Palin, Terry Jones, uh, were Oxford educated. So these are actually all really smart people, yeah. even though they like are ridiculously silly, like seemingly idiots who all dropped out of high school, but no, they're, they're smart people. And um, Gilliam was the token American, as he called it. And uh, it was interesting because, uh, you know, it seemed like uh, Cambridge seemed to produce this type of person that the, their best defense is a strong offense and their minds all were precise and more logical and systematic and always attacking all the time. And Gilliam notes that the Cambridge group were the bullies of the group. And so it, it does seem to all create this friction of like the, there's this way of thinking from the group and it pushes and pulls in such a way and it just resulted in something completely different. Yeah. It was great, but it seems like from reading this, they all drove each other nuts, particularly Terry Gilliam, trying to get the perfect shot for whatever reason, and he's trying to get the light to bounce off John Cleese's head perfectly. And there were times where they would just walk off, kind of F-bomb each other and walk off or say, I don't care about your shot. They were miserable during, during this. It was raining all the time. It's England. And they're in wool. So they're just wet cold and cranky i would have to say speaking of of the, the costuming they're wearing i think I, i'm not sure which of the pythons as we've been calling them is sir galahad but when he runs up to castle anthrax and meets uh zoot and the rest uh at um he's it, it's it's an outside shot and he is soaked and you have to imagine, like, whatever amount of, whether it's faux chainmail or not, with the tunic over it and the belt strapped across, that that must have been awful. Um, and, and so I, I, the realization that the shooting was uncomfortable or that they were at each other's throats, um, whatever pains they went through ended up with something that truly changed, like, the landscape of film comedy forever. Um, Russell, you talking about these guys being smart guys that revel in silliness. I think it's necessary if, if you are, if you're spending a lot of your time, whether it's with your occupation or whether it's the type of company you keep. And sometimes your discussions are about professional matters or they're about perhaps highbrow academic things. Uh, it doesn't mean you won't laugh at Ren and Stimpy. It, it doesn't mean, it, you know, it doesn't mean that like, a, you know, uh, jackass, something like that. A big hand comes and smacks somebody in the face. It's why, you know, you see somebody slip on ice. That whether Your first instinct might be to laugh. Um, I think they're, if, if they've got this high level of intelligence, it's maybe what allows them to really dive in headfirst to their silly side, which that's what this movie is all about. I think we talked about this on the 12 Chairs episode. Mel Brooks, you know, isn't too proud to make a fart joke. Yes, but, but on the other hand, he's incredibly—he's very—he's very intelligent. No oh, yeah. he's very well read, and he knows his history, and he assimilates all these pieces of information 
as he goes through life and he uses it to make humor. I see that in these guys too. So uh, it, uh, comedy is not a work of idiots and it goes underappreciated far too often. It can be. As, as Dustin just mentioned, I'm pretty sure Steve-O is not graduating from Harvard anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think he's playing the game at this level either, <laughs> you, know, you know, for sure. Uh, Michael Palin said the casting was largely determined by who wrote what. So Castle Anthrax was a Galahad thing. That was something that Michael Palin wrote himself. And, you know, Terry was the guy who cast as Galahad so that he was the one who would have written that, like, burn her, you know, witch at the stake sketch. And Lancelot was a mixture of stuff that they had written, but Cleese seemed to fit it the best. Eric Idle had written Brave Sir Robin, so he got the part. And uh, it's, it's interesting where these things naturally fell into place. And um, the other Camelot knots, uh, not, sorry, the other Camelot knights were written, but it was just too much. So they actually had parts to include Urien, Gorlis, uh, uh, Percival, Tristam, Uther, Alf, and others, but they cut them just yeah. because it was too much. And uh, there aren't that many of them either. But they did wind up. This is unusual for Monty Python. Usually the cast are playing women. The men are playing women. Which and, I think is funny. And this does happen. Terry Jones plays Dennis's mother. That, If you couldn't tell, that was a male. Oh, really? <laughs> but I, I loved Connie Booth as the witch. I'm doing air quotes here. Carol Cleveland as Zoot slash Dingo. So I like that they were willing to bring in women and let them have these very, very funny parts. It really seems to be frowned upon more lately that, you know, men dressing as women for comedy purposes. I, I would push back on that and just say it's funny. I mean... It's, it's a very it, British it, thing. It's a funny thing. I just... Steve, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie were doing it quite a bit in their comedy group, too. Like, Hugh Laurie was a woman a lot. Yeah. It, it, Kids it, in the Hall, it was over half of their sketches. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, just take one look at Will Ferrell playing Chan at Reno. And don't <laughs> laugh. I mean, it, it's it's hilarious. Before so. she beats you to a pulp and knocks down the wall. <laughs> but women are certainly funny too. And uh, I, I'm that the old narrative that Jerry Lewis would say, like of like women aren't funny. Well, that that's clearly not true either. And I'm, I think you're right, Chad. They got some funny ladies. Yeah. To come and join them here. So one sad thing about this cast is Graham Chapman's alcoholism caused him problems. During the filming of this, he, uh, Chad, did you read anything on this one? I did. So they were on an island pretty much when they were shooting this. There's no alcohol within like 25 miles, something to that extent. So he's kind of freaking out. He's sweating. And he was like a mountaineer or he enjoyed rock climbing or something to that extent. So he's used to heights. But his first scene was the bridge of death. And he's sweating and he's shaking. They call them DTs. Like, yes. Like a side effect of alcoholism, like going through withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah. So they all thought that he was sweating from the costume or sweating from perhaps the height of the bridge or whatever. And no, it was sadly because of the lack of alcohol. You know, he was forgetting his lines, things like that. So he unintentionally caused a lot of problems just through his own issues that he had to work through. He did get clean, I want to say, three years later. I don't know. He died early, so... Um, yeah. But yeah, it's... Um, it, he had taken to drinking in order to perform. Yes. To calm his nerves. So, it, again, these people all seem so fluid and natural at what they do, but uh, it is hard to get in that headspace. And so, unfortunately, Graham drank heavily in order to get into that headspace. 
as so many others have, whether it be John Belushi or, you know, Chris Farley or whatever, sometimes uh, the uh, unlocking of pure insanity and hilarity, unfortunately, comes through that. So um, that was true for him on this one. Dustin, do you have any fun casting notes? I will go with, what was the name of the actress who played Zoot again? Carol Cleveland. Oh, sorry, Carol Cleveland? The yes. entire the entire okay. tone of that like one off scene was different than anything else because it had the uh, like the the female voice. We also got the fourth wall breaking there, uh, and it was cool that it yeah. went to her as opposed to one of the one of the members of the of the group. I I will say there are some times when you have one main character like like i'm thinking of eric idol as sir robin not so brave as lancelot and then uh the you know a cut and immediately brother maynard is also played by him how many times this must have happened where they are playing characters against themselves in, in a scene uh now this is just the nature of of making movies but uh i i and and they do such a great job with mustaches, facial hair, costuming, uh, and 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 facial like distortion, like makeup to make people look different. But you know that that happens so frequently that it seems like it would have been dizzying. But these guys are ultimate professionals in that sense. And, and so uh, when, when when there's when there's so many memorable characters, you, you tend to remember like you know a couple of them. I had even though I've seen this movie so many times. Um, the, the giant, the three-headed giant, what I remember about that one-off story is Sir Robin and the Minstrels. I don't remember that the particular peril they ran into is a three-headed giant, but, uh, paying attention to the giant this time, um, you know, these three actors stuffed in a big costume, just like bickering with each other, even the smallest, even the smallest roles are, um, uh, fun to revisit and, uh, important to... Uh, just how is it? Five guys, six in, with Terry. Six guys. Well, it's Terry. five five heavy performers. Terry's Terry's Patsy in this. Right. So like you know, I mean, uh, he's the old man who's like the blind uh, guy uh, who tells them where to go yes. for the Grail. I mean, so uh, but he's also the director. So and the right. animator of the cartoon. So I don't want to diminish diminish Terry Gilliam's contributions. He's just not as usually as strong of a performer as the other five. So when I was thinking about uh, you know our, our uh, much loved uh, segment at the end of the show where we go over superlatives, uh, when I was thinking about like MVP or best actor like or supporting actor, I realized that it wasn't about the skill of portraying one role; it was the skill of transitioning. It's like um, it's like an athlete who runs the decathlon as opposed to somebody who does just one event. These are uh, multi-event athletes. Uh, in comedy, which was just kind of kind of cool to see, and you see it in a sketch show, but in a movie like this where you have the same several people playing these different roles, uh, was was really great, especially when when looking back at it with a more uh, critical view. I thought about this when we did the Coming to America episode. Eddie Murphy played multiple roles in Coming to America to great <laughs> success, and um, I thought then, and I think this even more so for this one is when you've got comedic powerhouses like like this group 
you're just in adding to the integrity of your movie instead of having to put pressure on yourself to find the right guy to find the right roles for all these things like what they did in office space which was amazing when we covered office space i couldn't believe how every little part had just the right guy in there to do what they needed to do in this case it's a little bit easier that that magic secret sauce that money python had was intact because they did everything yeah someone i forget which person i think it might have been michael palin had 12 roles so it it's really spread around now some of them are like narrator or whatever but even the end jokes here the picture of god was a famous cricket player that's what they did it from a portrait of a cricket player we should have been something a little more identifiable though you think so like well i meant like to today's times like i don't think like that's not like, kind of a deep cut now. Yeah, nobody knows who W.G. Grace is. Right. I think, well, that's I just because you're uncultured. <laughs> well, maybe. Not more uncultured <laughs> than me, so I got you beat there. Yes. So, uh, but a fun, other fun thing was they had 157 students, uh, college students, uh, from the University of Scotland and Stirling, and they did a casting call to bring them all together for their big battle scene at the end. And they shot it in such a way to make it look like there were more of them. But the ad to be an extra on this said, uh, to each student will be paid two pounds sterling and you'll get free transportation, food, and an abundance of crazy antics for a single day's work. Yes. What an ad. That's more than, I think I was paid $8 to be in Batman. You so, got paid? Yeah. Oh. We were there for 14 hours and had to wear winter coats in June. We should have been announcing it this whole time as paid professional actor. Yeah, where's my... Chad Robinson. Where's my SAG membership? So, uh, and, and Chad alluded to this one. This is an interesting thing. Financing this movie was actually quite difficult. The major studios didn't want to touch it, despite the Python's, I guess, proven brand on TV. Like you said, it wasn't really... wasn't the hit in England that it was here. So... In the 60s and 70s, they had an outrageous tax laws, and Gilliam recalls their group, like some, some groups in England were paying 90% of their income in taxes, and a lot of pop stars were looking for ways to, I guess, deduct or invest in such ways that would give them tax breaks, and so a lot of creative acts such as Genesis, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and bands of this nature uh, were given tax breaks by financing things, and they liked Monty Python, Pink Floyd being the most of them. The Dark Side of the Moon album uh, went towards funding this movie. So yes. something Chad loves, funding another thing that Chad loves. Yes, this is a perfect marriage. Like Pink Floyd loved Monty Python so much that they would stop what they were doing to tune in the, to the show. So this was big for them, and they probably don't get enough credit for helping finance and create something else that i love yeah i don't know what would have continued the chain had the proceeds of monty python and the holy grail gone to support another thing that you really like so i don't know <laughs> the, in the invention of sour patch kids i don't know yeah <laughs> I, I that don't, is true i, I don't know yes. what, the guys what would keep the chain going the guys for monty python invent sour patch kids yes that that would work for me or they go on to help direct uh, scream or halloween or Friday the Thirteenth. That didn't happen, but that would have been yes. that would have been uh, uh, the next level of connection there. So, um, Dustin, what do you think about? Our, we have two directors here: Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam. Both of them are actor directors, and they are tag teaming here. What do you think of their job as director? Well, I had to think about. I remember asking you, Russell, like, how do I how do I gauge like best director and 
you gave me a good answer that I don't remember, but it just it made me think <laughs> about it made me think about like all right the 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 goal of the movie like the the like the the mission of what is being digested or shown from an artist like that's kind of the director's job and so uh, I realized that if now I I do know that they like switched back and forth I know that the first shot was the bridge of death I know that they had like a camera issue the first day. And I know that, like, on some days, one person would be directing, one person the other. But um, I can't tell a difference between it. But I do know that the overall goal of what is presented is consistently, if it's if not consistently silly, consistently entertaining. The, the tonal shifts seem to be in the writing, which I guess makes sense because you said that the individual sketch artists kind of wrote their own one-off shots and, like, starred in them, we'll say. And sometimes it is up to, I think it was Gilliam who was the illustrator. or the, mm-hmm, the, yes. the, so, so that ties some things together. The music ties things together. And I'm actually speaking of the sillier music, the carnival circus-esque music, not just the, um, not just the, like the orchestral score. Uh, but the, the, it, it is uh, a whole movie as, as far as, like what? What is the goal of what Monty Python wants us to get out of it? Like the humor. So I would say that as a combined effort, these two guys deliver something complete to us. Uh, so it, like that's how I'll have to answer the question: is kind of is is there anything like that stands out about their directing style? Like I said, I, I'm I, I'm the one that has the 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 least amount of movie cred here. So my my eye is more just to, the, to uh, what was funny to me. Uh, as opposed to uh, the directorial styles, but uh, when you don't notice something in that sense, it's like, oh, that must that must mean they did a great job. I think the skill here is shown by what we know they're limited to. Four hundred thousand dollars isn't a lot of money. They reuse the same castle like three or four times, but they take different shots. That way, you know. Maybe there's some degree of, okay, maybe this is a different castle, whatever. It has to be very resourceful. Yes. Yeah, you're using spray-painted chain mail instead of actual, it's not real chain mail except for Graham Chapman's. We wanted horses. We can't afford horses. So how do we make this work? Oh, you know what would be funny? Is if we had someone banging coconuts together, pantomiming a horse. and just mm-hmm. Like, that is... This movie wouldn't be the same if there were horses. I don't think it would be as cold. No way. Classic. What if they were sticks with horse heads on them like the children have? The coconuts are just so central to this. The coconut may be my MVP. I may be changing. <laughs> Russell, that's that's funny, but it's not iconic. It's true. This this became iconic. And, and uh, Chad, speaking of the, the budget... Um, I, I also knew that they couldn't afford horses. Um, I was thinking to myself uh, about the sound of, of um, the recorded voices in this movie. To me, it seems as if Graham, remind me the name, like I said, I Graham don't know their names. Graham Chapman, I think, yells 75% of his lines because he's either yelling up at a <laughs> castle or he's yelling over something loud. And I feel like the voice recording or like, like what we're hearing is not just for the time. I just feel like it's bad. It is. And you're I, not wrong. And I wonder, one, if if like if it wasn't for the budget, is it is it being bad intentionally funny? I think it. I think it goes to the Monty Python aesthetic 
at the time because they had an established brand of being a TV show in Flying Circus, and this is a step up from TV, but not much. Like I, the the color grade, yes, it's the seventies, but it's there's other seventies movies that are that are prettier, if you yes. will, to look at. It's grainy. It's sound quality is not that high. But to your point, Justin, I think you're saying like the homemade nature of it, it it's just adds to the circus, you know? So that reminds me of something that may or may not have happened, but I, I know about it from the Jim Carrey movie, uh, Man on the Moon, about Andy Kaufman. Where there's a scene in that movie where um, he... He thinks it would be funny to leave some TV signal distortion in the clip that's going to air. And uh, the person he's talking to is like, oh, we'll get rid of that. He's like, no, leave it. Wouldn't that be funny? Is they're watching, they're watching the show and then they have to get up and he pantomimes like walking over to the TV and they start banging their TV. Isn't that funny? And, and so that's where I thought to myself, like, there is, with a group like this, there's such a, like a, a level to making humor out of the credits um yes. adding an intermission out of nowhere um breaking the fourth wall obviously ending with something that's seemingly not satisfying at all i know in my in my version you watch the dvd too do I'm wondering if anybody streamed it. I wonder if it's different. I have the opening where they start on the wrong movie. I know. That, that, I, I bought a used copy, so my first thought was like, what shenanigans is this? Really? Oh. <laughs> it's like the theater house. Yeah. So, so when they were showing this for the first time, the credits actually messed up, and the the film reel caught on fire and the audience was cracking up laughing thinking it was part of the joke and <laughs> the projectionist had to be like no there's there's actually a problem you uh, you need to leave and we'll come back well and, and maybe people are thinking oh this guy must be a plant let's just let's just sit tight eat some more popcorn and we'll see what's coming next this uh this part of the podcast brought to you by dream sponsors of dentist on the job which is that first like minute minute and a half of not the right movie uh, so, so like this mission of, of what this movie did uh, was accomplished in so many ways. Uh, and yeah, the, the person in charge of the projectionist getting sacked has just been sacked. These, these things are just memorable and iconic. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting the, why these two got to be the director. They just simply were the ones who kind of wanted to take this on. And it was a bit of a thing to take on. Terry Gilliam was saying that... Uh, this was the first time for them that they were, you know, taking and they got stuck with a lot of being a director is not all glamorous stuff. It's about sequencing. It's about making sure everything's lined up at the right time. You're, you're kind of a manager in some ways. So we always give them credit for we talk about their creative uh, achievements, but these guys had to figure out the logistics of how to make everything happen while uh, these other silly people were actually you can only imagine it's, it's tried. It's hard to try and contain the creativity at the right time. Yeah. And so uh, the other guys were actually a little hard on them, saying that they kind of felt like they were becoming a little too concerned with how the movie looks. Like John Cleese was saying, like, okay, guys, like more and more smoke, more and more smoke. How many laughs is the smoke getting, you know? Right. And uh, they were getting frustrated with them becoming sucked into the presentation, particularly Gilliam, whereas uh, I, uh, Terry Jones might have done a better job of balancing 
looking for the laughs. And you can see this in how they shoot. A lot of the long shots that are farther back are Terry Jones shots. And a lot of the more experiential shots, like when you're moving through the nights that say knee, it's actually kind of creepy for a while. Or like that really awesome close-up of the skull with the mountains in the background, just like, well, that's actually a creative shot. These are Gilliam moves. And if you look at Gilliam's later work, where he goes with it, I mean, it's he does some pretty impressive directorial work later, Time Bandits, and particularly Brazil. And I mean, he goes and does some very heavy science fictional things. I mean, 12 Monkeys and a number of other things. Uh, Terry Jones is more, you know, he goes on to direct Life of Brian on his own. They kind of take away the keys of the car for the Monty Python vehicles from Terry Gilliam because he was so into that aesthetic. But you can see that coming through in his own work. But I like I like that they're both thinking about that here. Even though the smoke's not what gets the laughs, presenting stuff in a certain way and getting the right tones sometimes sets up a big laugh. Yeah, I mean, you've got to corral a bunch of geniuses that are all trying to be funny in their own ways. Yeah, and to point Chad's point, this takes place in some tough shooting conditions. You know, the, where they were staying was like a small place that didn't have enough hot water, and everybody was rushing back to try and get the hot shower. I mean, uh, you know, Graham Chapman's, you know, suffering from alcoholism syndromes and stuff like that, and, and uh, your props aren't working. As Justin mentioned, the camera broke on the first day. So, you know... First-time directors, it's uh, it's definitely something to be proud of that they were able to do something that people are still talking about to this day, and still enjoying. It 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 was so so good. I I, I will give my friend his copy of uh, the Holy Grail back, but it'll stay in my DVD player for a little bit. Maybe you can sub it out for that other film that you thought was at the beginning, but the whole film. I'm go- I'm gonna have to find my copy of Lucky Number Eleven. I, I said I only have a couple DVDs. <laughs> like it's, I gotta, I gotta find it. I've got the box for it. Yeah. Uh, listener, listeners of the podcast will know that that's one of the great mysteries of the DVDs I own. Chad, any kind of atmosphere comments? I mean, they nailed medieval Europe. It just, it doesn't feel like modern day Scotland or Wales or wherever else they included in feeling and filming. Shooting in real castles helps. Yeah, definitely. But most of the time they weren't doing that. It's just Dustin alluded to the Knights Husseini going into the forest and you see a bunch of the mist or the mist coming out in the very opening shot where you hear the horse hooves and then it's slowly emerging. Oh, we're not on horses. This is going to be very silly. So yeah, they, they set the tone early. They give you some good shots. They kind of show off for you a little bit and they just keep it up there's creepy atmospheric music when you know you're going to encounter a formidable foe even though immediately they say nee. <laughs> <laughs> they're the keeper of the sacred words yeah mm-hmm. so two weeks before shooting began the scottish department of environment withdrew permission for the pythons to shoot within their castles, saying that the script was incompatible with the historical fabric of the castles which I find hard to believe because they dumped, you know, poop and like hot tar on people uh, who were sieging their castle, which, you know, it was a it was the intent was for protection from rioters. But, uh, you know, for castles in general. But uh, this silliness was not in keeping with the facility. So they took away their uh, they took away their castles and they ended up going to a private privately owned castle and so that would be Castle Anthrax, the French Castle, the Camelot, uh, the Swamp Castle, 
all of these were just different shots of the same castle as Chad mentioned to earlier. So, yep. yeah. And it worked out. It's Dune Castle. And Dune Castle has been kind of a pilgrimage site for Monty Python fans. So they've profited. Good for them. Yes. They have some expensive actual coconuts from the <laughs> from the set, which cost more money than they should. I would <laughs> yeah, love those. I, movie props always get bought for the most strange amounts of money. Like It's just one of those things where you're just like, man, rich people really just, you know, i got to spend it on something. I must have those coconuts. Yeah. I can't think of a I can't think of a movie uh, that that I would need a prop from. I think if anything, I'd I'd really like a Ruby Rod style leopard print like onesie suit. If I could get my hair to do that, like from Fifth Element. But I can't I can't like lightsaber. I will, I don't want a lightsaber. Chad, do you want a lightsaber? Yes, he does. Yes, yes, he does. You're well, asking you're the asking Star Wars. The wrong, you're, you're asking the wrong guy. Yes. No, I'm asking the Chad. Right would you guy. like a Star Wars Star Trek phaser? I mean, eBay would. No, that's not what I, mean. I get you a, a, a Pez dispenser for, yeah. uh, that, that dispenses Medichlorians. There you go. Uh, so several scenes were actually filmed for Monty Python's Holy Grail here at, at highly public places, actually, to Chad's point. So some of them were done in like a park that was, you know, in a more populated area, but they're shot in such a way. Like, so Hampstead Heath Park is in London, and that's where John Cleese was running over those yes. hills and stuff like that. And people actually <laughs> were just collected around watching him run like at them like what's going on yeah you've got a guy in medieval armor with a broadsword just standing there like what is happening yeah and john cleese as tim the enchanter actually stood on the pinnacle seen at the beginning of the scene and one side was a drop that he that could have killed him and the other side was a drop that he sort of maimed him so he leaned more forward to the side that would maim him uh, between takes he would crouch down though because uh it was so windy there he was a you know he was a little bit frightened and uh, he was very scared but he did it anyway because he knew the budget and the timelines of the work that they had to do were tight uh so he took one for the team yes i'm glad i'm glad he yeah. survived Yes. Yeah. Depending on where you're standing, there could be a there could be a cow flung at you from who knows how many castles. <laughs> yeah, and Michael Palin was not not Michael Palin was not happy during the Bring Out Your Dead sketch. Uh, he was forced to crawl in the mud, and uh, he had a yoke on his neck, and uh, he was a it was the mud eater in the scene, and unfortunately that got cut. So he literally uh-huh. he's mad about it to this day. Uh, you know, he had to eat mud pig excrement like in. Actually, you know, and uh, he's mad about it. I don't blame him. So, uh, yeah, take one for the team. Any fun wardrobe comments? You mentioned that the only real chainmail was on King Arthur here, and that the rest of it's wool. And at a close look, it's be- it's not that great. But I mean, at a distant look, which is much of this, it it's actually pretty decent. Yeah. Dustin, any thoughts on the wardrobe? Totally. It's not just like the superlatives. I I, I think that this is a uh, a catalyst for. Like what you what you you could make this costume and dress up like one of these knights for Halloween, right? Because uh, it's not like full plate mail or something. I I, I am re- I, if you kind of take a look, you'll notice that the uh, the French soldiers when they come out and retrieve the Trojan rabbit aren't actually wearing any what pantaloons or anything. They, yes. They, 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 like it's and I'm wondering and that's another thing about like just the the depths of this comedy. Is that on purpose? To have the French soldiers not wear pants. I oh, think so. They're clearly making fun of the French. French. Yeah. Why do you think I have this ridiculous <laughs> accent? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so th- that's really good. 
at Castle Anthrax, none of the dresses are quite the same because you know that they could they, like to have anything custom made. So they're just like, all right, white dress will work. Uh, so, so like all of those things are just kind of uh, you wouldn't have them the same. The the same goes with the dress worn by the princess who is supposed to be wed to Herbert. Like um, it's just this is the nicest dress we could find if this were medieval times or nine thirty two or nine twenty three, whichever you said. Uh, like it, whatever's the nicest we can find here is is gonna work for at least if you're at Swamp Castle, the aptly named Swamp Castle. Uh, I, the Knights Husseini and the Enchanter, I, I really like, and we saw a lot of this in a show like Game of Thrones, but I really like furs, a big, heavy, wide shoulder, like furs over over top, the Knights Husseini, uh, and then I guess the Knights who formerly said knee, uh, they, they, their horned helmets are, are fun, especially as sort of silhouettes in the back. Uh, I, I, can I get through answering this question without listing everything I like about this movie? I think I, I realize I could just probably keep talking about every costume, so I I won't. But uh, and Tim the Enchanter's horns uh, I think are are really great because he looks uh, menacing and he talks menacingly, and then he comes at you with the like the finger fangs afterwards. Like, oh, he's silly too. No one's exempt from the silliness. We're just going to splice in the get on with it part. Yes. Get on with it. Get uh, on with it. Get on with it. Chad, are there special effects that you liked? We have to start with the fake horses. I feel like that's a special effect. The, <laughs> I I appreciate just the ridiculousness of it. But the animation, you know, there's... There's a lot of funny scenes that take place with just the animation. God is animated. He's this ridiculous character that kind of reminds me of South Park with the way like Terrence the, and Philip, yeah, yeah. But but I was thinking more like Jib Jab too. They did that, but yeah, the mouth the mouth is moving. You know, the Black Beast is animated, and all of a sudden it just fades out. It goes to white. The Robin's minstrels getting eaten is during an animated sequence. They just go in a shrub, and then there's a little flag that comes up. It's like, yay! Mm -hmm. So all of the animation is just fantastic. The special effect, I liked how they did it for the Black Knight. The first leg lost. It it was John Cleese in the Black Knight suit. The first leg lost. They found someone that only had one leg, and so they stuck him in the costume. No way. I did. Oh, wow. I did (laughs) not know. There's a silversmith in town, yeah. Yes. Yes, there was a local silversmith, something that doesn't really come up very often. But yes, there was a one legged silversmith. And then they started using a puppet for the Black Knight. And finally, the the last shot where he's wiggling around, they dug a hole and stuck John Cleese in it. And he's in a hole screaming ridiculous things of, come back here and I'll bite your legs off. So that, just practical effects of, hey, we dug a hole. So I appreciate their resourcefulness here. Yes. There's, two, there's two things there I want to I wanna expand on. One of them is the Black Knight. And versus the Green Knight, um, I just got to give props to how um, I've been to a less uh, a handful of Renaissance fairs, and I think the thing I like when I go is I want to see some type of combat demonstration, not the big one, you know, not not the big kind of fake fight. I want I want to go to like sword fighting school, and, and that's that's a common one I go back to. 
And um, I, I watched a demonstration on how a claymore or a big two-handed broadsword would be used. And in that fight of the Black Knight versus the Green Knight, uh, truly, those swords hitting against each other's armor would have done nothing. The, the, the bashing into each other with their body weight, kneeing into one another, using just uh, like their gauntlets to kind of smash into one another, eventually gaining enough of an advantage to plunge. That's the only way that sword could have really done any damage to the knights. So the way that that fight scene ends with the sword going through the eye slit, the eye slit, or the, uh, like, around the neck area is essentially the only way a killing blow could have happened there. Now, we do see Arthur uh, manage to, you know, take off uh, different different parts of the Black Knight, but I have to attribute that to the fact that Arthur has a magic sword, which yes. then defies the rest of the, the rules about wearing armor and where the joints and, and like where that would happen so that's another like kind of i don't know how much time they spent looking at the accuracy of that but that was kind of done like as correctly as it could have been which is pretty neat in the middle of this silly silly movie yeah absolutely as we go through we tend to talk about the music earlier but if you haven't seen it go see 2006's production which is still in, out there today spam a lot the musical the broadway musical it's it's awesome uh, some of my little mentionings, like how the third act drags a little bit, they make some changes. And uh, obviously adding a music to it is another level of humor. So if you like it, uh, it's it's a seal of approval from the Python crew. It's uh, it's very funny. It's I, a, I, I recommend it. It's a great dance number right in the middle of the film, but it's a catchy tune. So I love the it Knights of the Round Table. The theme... For a movie like this, the theme has no business being as good and as epic as it is. I love the Monty Python theme, the it, Holy Grail theme. Yeah, absolutely. You don't know what you're getting into at that point, so it's funnier for, you know, there's a sense of seriousness and there's nothing serious about this to happen at all. So. <laughs> I'm glad that they appreciate the spam a lot because from what I w- would understand, their opera mad and Camelot, they sing from the diaphragm a lot. It is catchy. I do like it. Yeah, and one of the funny things, I don't want to spoil too much on that, but uh, Lancelot's gay, so when he rescues Galahad from that situation... (laughs) I bet you're gay. No, I'm not. They they take that element and they start to play it up. So there are changes, particularly towards the end, so it's not just a Broadway retelling of all the same sketches. Much of what you love is already there. You will still have your holy hand grenade. You will still have Bernhard, she's a witch. You will still have the French wall taunting, but... Funny music numbers, etc., are added. So if you just want more hilarity, go check out Spamalot. Very good. Ready to hand out some awards. Excellent. Yes. Chad, MVP. This is tough, but I'm going with Graham Chapman as Arthur. He does God, which is kind of cool, and the three-headed giant. But really, Arthur is our straight man. He's the closest thing. He's, he's kind of the straight man. Like, people play off of him more so. He's yeah. just kind of, like, has bombastic reactions to people. Yeah, his, it's the reactions to the ridiculousness going on around him that are just fantastic. Like, even the Black Knight's silence of, will you join us? And there's silence. He goes, you make me sad. Just <laughs> how he gets those lines off, even even with the coconuts at the end. How do you know so much about swallows? Well, when you're the king, you have to know these <laughs> things. And we learned through the movie, like he clearly had been educated through a battle with the Frenchman, just happened to come up. I love his reaction. So Graham Chapman, 
Yeah. All right, Dustin, who's your MVP? It's Eric Idle here. Uh, I, I think he, everyone has such knockout performances, but for me, the Bring Out Your Dead collector, I, I really like uh, Sir Robin, the not-quite-so-brave as Sir Lancelot. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes that we really haven't talked about are the two guards who can't figure out how yeah. to get Herbert. <laughs> Thank you for bringing them up. I they love were that great. scene. And, and what I realized is, and when I said earlier, whether it was pre-record or not, that this, this movie has influenced my own sense of humor, that he can't get it right has it been something that I've kind of put into my own, like the, the way I, I, I tend to be silly myself. Someone gives me a simple instruction and I mess it up somehow. That's funny to me. And I just, I did definitely like it. It was like, I'm leaving. Uh, make sure to stay here and watch him. I was like, where are you going? We're coming with you. Why? He's <laughs> <laughs> supposed to stay here. And, and no singing. <laughs> well, and uh, Graham Chapman's the other one, right? Yes. Is he the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's the hiccuping one. Get your drink of water, will you? <laughs> My MVP is going to be John Cleese. Yes. Uh, I think that he's all over the place here. He's the second guard, as you mentioned, uh, which that scene did crack me up. Uh, especially he's the black knight before modifications and uh you know he's lancelot i think just going through and killing everybody in there <laughs> you in killed the bride's father did i sorry about that <laughs> i need a more dramatic exit I, I something about john cleese's just regular speaking voice he and eric idle to me are probably my favorite pythons and they can just Same. read they can just read like a standard line somehow it, it seems funny palin's i think very physically gifted but I, I just my general take of the whole thing i i tend to like cleese the most and that's just probably rubbing through yeah as this is as i give this award so that's just general monty pythonism probably tainting my or, or skewing my by making my my vote for mvp bias best supporting which you can totally still say one of the Pythons, even though they're all kind of main actors. So, uh, you know, we'll bend this a little bit. Yeah, I went with John Cleese. His Frenchman is ridiculous and hilarious. And you didn't bring it up. But my favorite part of John Cleese is Tim. Mm, that's my I, least favorite part of what he does. I love his enchanter, Tim. He just leans into absurdity so much and i appreciate him so much i thought he was the best peasant too and, and the, yes. uh, who wanted to burn the witch i think he was the best of the uh, burn her burn her anyway yes. <laughs> so uh dustin best supporting john cleese uh I, i'm glad you gave us permission to, to pick another python because yeah that it, it's him for me i will say uh, I, I think the first line that I ever repeated from the movie was, I fart in your general direction. <laughs> um, I, I know a lot of people like the line afterwards, which is, um, uh, you know, your, your, your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. Uh, like, I, that's off the top of my head. I don't need to look at these quotes. They're in my head forever. Um, and and Cleese, even though I think he's... Of the other knights, maybe the straight man of the other knights sometimes, because he's bravery first, uh, in a way. Uh, I, I, I still think every, every character he plays is, is stands out to me. Uh, so, very happy to have somebody of his caliber be a supporting actor, so that's mine. Three picks for Mike, uh, John Cleese, uh, one MVP and two best supportings. My best supporting is going to go to Michael Palin. Uh, he's the, he, he's, he, along with John Cleese, is the swallow-savvy guard counterpart, who have that ridiculous dialogue about the swallows he's sir galahad the pure so i i definitely liked 
uh, him being tempted by all the horny nuns. That was very funny. And um, he's the king of Castle Swamp as well. Yeah. And I think that he's very good at not wanting his effeminate son to sing and, <laughs> and forcing him to get married when he doesn't want to. That was that was a very, very good character. So And he's um, also Dennis. I love Dennis out in the out in the mud with yeah. all the high speech coming from a peasant. Well who made you king then? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I, I definitely like Dennis as well. So, uh, Michael Palin's, uh, my best supporting hidden gem. This probably means get, I get outside of the pythons here. Chat. I think I'm going to go with a running gag as my hidden gem. And throughout the film, it makes me laugh every single time. There's a cat yes. that's, that's being beaten against a wall. It's in the bring out your dead scene. There's a woman just going ham on a cat against the wall. And then we run into it again with Roger the Shrubber. There's a cat being beaten against a tent pole. I love cats. You do. That's surprising. I, I really do. I have three at home. But you, even throughout the film, you constantly hear this meow when they're throwing stuff over the wall. So the cat gag, it never got old for me. They never explain it. They don't have to. It's hilarious. Hidden gem, Dustin. Uh, mine is the first time that the use of five instead of three comes up is just a little <laughs> bit before the hand grenade. Yes. Uh, just a little bit, because uh, th there's already been one attack on the Fearsome Beast, and uh, they're like, all right, well, you know, what happened up there? How many men did we lose? Gawain, Hector, and Bors. That's five. Three, sir. It's like, yes. that's the first time. And so, it, like, in a movie chock full of jokes, you said over 500, Chad, uh, when, when something, like, cause, like, catching it this time was something that I had maybe noticed not as much as the you know original million times I watched it. So that's my hidden gem is that it comes in a little earlier than the hand grenade. Uh, yes, yes. And my hidden gem is going to be, uh, I'm going to go with Connie Booth. Is, is she buried in the cast enough to be hidden? I think so. And okay. she's great. I was going to say, if not, I'll, I'll just make it a coconut's cut in half. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Connie Booth was very funny. And as she, the witch. Who, yep. Yeah, as the witch. Her, her just her being doomed while all these ridiculous arguments are happening around her really adds to the comedy of just like my life's at stake here yes. and this is all so stupid. They dress me up like this. No kidding. Okay, well maybe we do. Yes. The nose. She has got a wart. <laughs> it's not my nose. It's a false one. <laughs> so uh, she was very very good in that scene, and I I um, you know everything was clicking on that scene for me. So. Recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place, who are you recasting, Chad? Good lord. It's it's impossible to recast because of how many roles they had, but I think I'm going after Terry Jones here. I think he's the easiest to recast. He plays Bedivere, and he also plays the Prince... The visor who keeps falling down in his yes, face. Yes, the yeah. man of science and Prince Herbert. <laughs> I think you can replace him with Hugh Laurie. Sure. Yeah. He is probably the most replaceable of the Pythons, I would say, yeah. Yeah, and you've got a very funny, people know him from House, but Hugh Laurie is... Well, I guess you could say Gilliam. Yeah, maybe. Hugh Laurie is part of a famous British comedy troupe, so he's my choice. Dustin, recast. My recast is um, Tim Curry as Tim the Enchanter. Oh, mm. that would be... Yeah, give, give him the horns that he had in Legend. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, just I was I was 
trying to figure something out and they all have so many great roles that taking one away for just one scene would be great and i just um i had actually uh, the reason i thought of it was i had a a, a gif saved in my phone of uh, dr frankenfurter um when, when he says something like uh Antissa patient and i i came across that gif while scrolling through a text thread or something and i was like oh wow wouldn't he be a great enchanter so that's mine Oh yeah, definitely one of the show favorites, Tim Curry. You you can make any movie better by adding Tim Curry. Correct. <laughs> I'm gonna do Christopher Lee as the voice of God. Mm. Oh, okay. That's very good. Not Morgan Freeman. He's. Uh, I don't even know that we have Morgan Freeman having made his breakout yet at Probably this point. Not, so no. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Christopher Lee on this one. I like it, Dracula. Yeah, best shot, Chad. I talked about it a little bit, but the opening misty shot where you hear the horse hooves. And then you see Arthur and Patsy emerging. It's a great shot, great setup. Makes you really think we're going to be in for a, something a little more serious until just the breakthrough shot. So yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Dustin. Bum, 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 bum. Sailing to Castle Arg. It is an incredible score, and it's misty over the lake. And that boat. If, if I just found that boat in, like, a prop warehouse or something, I would find a way to make a movie that gets that boat in there. That's my favorite shot. Gilliam, I think, built it. It was Gilliam or Jones, but everyone else was really impressed with it. I, I'm yeah, impressed I with it. Yeah. Um, my best shot's going to go to the moment of the battle scene where apparently there's only 157 students here. It looks way more. Yeah. Like, you're ready for something climactic here at the end and they pull it away from you at the very end and i think that in itself is a very python thing to do to deny someone of that so you think you're getting in for braveheart uh but then then it's all broken up so i think the the epic nature of what that shot's about to give you with their limited resources is is my favorite shot although i was just about to watch an epic battle no yeah. you not <laughs> best scene chad this is one of the hardest questions I think I've ever had to answer. I you love your this favorite movie child. So much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the cave of Carbona. It's just really. It's ridiculous. Tim's dialogue is hilarious when they're getting attacked by the rabbit, and he's just in the background laughing his head off. And at the end, he's like, <laughs> "I warned you. I warned you. No, no. It's just a harmless little bunny. I warn you." And Robin's saying. I, I've done it again as and he soiled himself and you hear go and change your armor. We get the holy hand grenade. This inspires my favorite weapon in the Worms franchise. So there you go. This does spawn something else that I really, really love. Just everything about it. Iconic, hilarious. I can't stop laughing. The sight gag of the rabbit. Yeah. Attacking people. <laughs> that poor rabbit, which they they died with food coloring and it was a rented rabbit, and they were trying to scrub it clean like the entire cast was trying to scrub it clean and couldn't get the food coloring out. Didn't hurt the rabbit, but the owner was furious. Well, it's a very nice white rabbit. Yes. That's why I got cast in the first place. Yeah. I mean, think about it. what magician wants to pull a pink rabbit out of their hat. They want, a, they want a white rabbit. But who rents a rabbit? Again, magicians need rabbits to pull out of hats. I, I, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I can speak on behalf of the rabbit-owning community, even though I don't own a rabbit on this one. I mean, I would have been completely right out to, like, to, like, to come in with a pink rabbit. So I just um, rented this rabbit from you. No, you yeah. haven't. No, the rabbit I rented was white. This is a pink rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> 
And uh, don't allow any tricks around that facility because those are for kids, not for rabbits. Mm. But um, best scene for me is going to be burn her. She's a witch. Oh my goodness! When the burn cast, her. when the cast can't stop laughing and they have to do several takes, you know. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Yeah, it it's uh, it's so good. My my hidden gem, Connie Booth, was in there. So, what do we do with the witches, Dustin? What is your best scene? Mine is Lancelot's assault on Castle Swamp. Very funny. <laughs> Very funny. Beginning with the long, drawn-out uh, yeah, running scene, and then he shows up and slays the man eating the orange soon. I counted it out, um, and I actually went back and made sure to not count the ones who do survive, uh, but he kills 25 people. <laughs> um, if you were going to count him destroying the stage, we're going to say that the fall kills the musicians I, I, I don't know but I, I counted it out he also kills one floral arrangement uh well done he does not kill the bride but then after he's introduced to the special guest he does get three more so, <laughs> um, it also in, in the, having um the two guards that can't really figure out how to guard herbert um the, 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 it's it, in it, all together i think each of those individual jokes isn't my favorite but the whole scene together is is so complete i love it Oh, oh, my goodness. Very good choice. When he stabs the first guard and goes, ha-ha! And the other <laughs> guard just goes, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he runs on by. Yeah. Now, Chad, what is your best wardrobe or makeup moment? Tim's staff. I want it. Oh, wow. This is a movie prop that I now want. It's where most of the budget, I think, went. The flamethrower slash missile launcher combo and a staff. You do like Tim better than I. I do. Yeah. Tim, wow. yes. Wow, okay, yeah. Uh, now, Dustin, what is your best wardrobe or makeup moment? This is, I think, another really long, simmering joke, which is that Sir Bedivere's helmet has a lid, like a caged lid mm-hmm. over it, that he he continuously lifts it to speak, as if <laughs> Even you can't open. hear him, as if you can't hear him when it's closed. Now, there are times in the movie where he's speaking, and the, then he doesn't open the, the cage across his face, but that he does it throughout the whole movie kills me. It has <laughs> to be a choice by Monty Python to have. What if we have a guy that feels like he has to open the, the eye slits in order to talk, and he does it every time? Uh, it's, it's so great. Even though he's not my favorite character, that choice to have him lift that up is great. And he's the smart one. It's funny, in this pandemic time, I see people doing that with their their face yeah. masks like uh people over the last year like would go to the deli counter and be like pull their mask down and be like i'd like a half a pound of ham it's just like that's not how masks work like i mean <laughs> they can hear you through them like uh, it, it, that's so it's uh that, that uh that lifting it like you said to talk when you don't need it that's very funny <laughs> that that piece of wardrobe by the way sold for twenty nine thousand dollars in 2007 wow so wow. yeah like i said rich people need things to spend money on it's got some impressive plumage on top as well. Yes, it does. It's not a matter of the plumage. My best wardrobe moment's going to be the three-headed giant, which is Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Graham Chapman being wrapped together in yes. one <laughs> ridiculous-looking giant. It's very funny, and their voices are very funny, and the fact that they argue with each other in the proximity in which they are in, it's very, very funny. Yeah. 
I love that. What should we do? I think we should kill him. I think we should be nice to him. <laughs> I love that too. We should be nice to him. There is a weird, uh, there's a weird joke that I think, like, it's not that it misses, it just is written weird, where it's like, I think we should have tea and biscuits. And the one on the left says, no, not biscuits. And that makes me think, who denies biscuits with your tea? So it's like they got the joke wrong. You, of course you should have biscuits. That's all I'll say about it. But there are cookies in England. That's true. Uh, uh, are you at? All right, I know I'm the lowbrow member of the of this roundtable, but I even I knew that. I know that biscuits. <laughs> I know that biscuits are cookies, and I know that crisps are chips. It's true. Very good. Yep. Yep. And I know that chips are fries. I know. There you go. You completed it. Uh, <laughs> um, now, Chad, change one thing. I really don't like the bloody weather joke for the animated transition into Lancelot's tale. It's when the sun and the clouds are jumping <laughs> outside. And the guy's, I think it's a monk or oh, something. Oh, the Gilliam animation? Yeah, he, he's writing and then he goes down the stairs. It yeah. takes forever, falls, goes outside, yells at the weather. It just takes a long time. It doesn't make much sense. And the payoff joke of bloody weather really doesn't work for me. Well, that's a good comment. Yeah. Yeah. Dustin, how about you? Change one thing. I know that they don't all get to cross the Bridge of Death. I would have Sir Lancelot be the one who, like, fails at the challenge. I think Robin needs to survive it. Even if Robin's the one that ends up getting uh, collared by the police. I I just, I, I wanted him to, like, redeem himself in some way. Like, the only thing he was brave enough for was for easy questions. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it, what they did well, was great know that. too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what they did, I loved too. But uh, I, I would like to see Sir Robin make it and Sir Lancelot not. I guess that's. But it's very small because I, I love the movie. Yeah, yeah. Might change one thing. It's tough. It's tough on this one. So might change one thing. I, we've been talking about it, and you're gonna you're gonna shoot me, Chad. But I, I just think Tim scene could be cut. Oh goodness. Like the, not the cave, not the cave, but the build up on the on the outlook where the flame, the pyrotechnics are going. I thought it was a little bit light on the jokes, to be honest with you. Oh no! <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no. When they're stuttering and stuttering, and then he goes, "Oh, grail." I, I'll be honest with you. I thought Tim was was not connecting with me. And the other thing I was gonna say is that my runner up would be just don't go back to the Knights of Nia second time. They they were very very funny to get them a shrubbery, but get them a shrubbery. And then just have them really oogle, ooh and ah, the shrubbery. To have them try and do it all again. They're now not the knights that say neither. They're now the knights that say whatever it is. Yeah, that was, so like I said, these are contributing moments in this back part of the movie that are, like I said, they're just chipping away at my enjoyment just a little bit. I'm unhappy. He, he's. I've made him sad. He's sad I actually so do times. kind of understand what you're saying, particularly with the Knights of Knee. Uh, cut down the greatest tree in the forest with a herring. Yeah. If there is a too silly, maybe that's the maybe that's the silliest thing. If you're gonna do that, get it in the earlier part before they ask for the shrubbery or something. I don't know. Like, um, like he's like, I will do no such thing. Well, then get us a shrubbery. Like you can <laughs> you can still do that. Like, but a second round of it, maybe not. But uh, best quote. Chad, you're going to have a hard time with this one as well. This is, this is uh, picking yeah. your favorite child again. This is tied with the second hardest question, or the hardest question ever. Uh, the whole movie is quotable. We've been quoting it this entire podcast. 
I think I have to go with Dennis's line, though. You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. <laughs> it just completely undoes the Arthurian legend. Yeah. Dustin, what is your best quote? Oh, it is, uh, it is kind of in the middle of when you're learning about Herbert and father, which is when uh, he shoots the arrow out of the window. <laughs> And he and he accidentally shoots, and he shoots Concord, uh, in, and as soon you you hear the sound of like the and it hits him, and uh, Eric Idle Concord says, "Message for you, sir," and yes. he falls down. <laughs> that, that one caught me off guard on this watch, and uh, I was just like, "Man, that's just so good." And the follow-up scene is great too, but that—that's mine. It did lead to some good lines of like, "I have, uh, you have been mortally wounded. I think I'm going to pull through." Yes. <laughs> I can go it's with so you. Good. No, 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 Steve. No, sweet Concord. <laughs> sweet Concord. <laughs> uh, my my best quote. We mentioned it earlier, but it's definitely um, it comes from my favorite scene of like, "What makes you think that she is a witch?" Well, she turned me into a newt. <laughs> a newt. <laughs> I got better. <laughs> Burn her anyway. That in this entire movie. I mean, we could have picked anything. Run away, knee, everything. You've yeah. got no arms. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'm surprised nobody picked the black knight. Yes. Uh, Chad's wearing a black knight I, I shirt on it. as we're broadcasting yes. now. It's just a flesh wound. Yeah. I like that. I move for no man. It's not a funny. It's not a funny line. It's just like a menacing line. God, this movie's good. <laughs> and on that note, we've come full circle here on a five star scale. Chad, half star intervals. What would you rate? Monty Python's and the Holy Grail. Five stars? Are you kidding me? I, this is five stars. I will hear have no debate. Five stars. Okay. One, two, five. Not three. Three is right out. Five. Okay. Uh, Dustin, on a scale of five stars, Hashtag Intervals, what is your rating? This is a five-star movie. Chad, yes. you're right. This is five stars, man. I-, I couldn't think of any reason not to rate it anything but it. Uh, because it's just been it's been woven into like how I grew up, and I think for a lot of people it's that way. Would I say it's a, a perfect movie? No, but but as far as for what it is and its impact, it's incredible. Um, and I think if like you know two weeks ago, if you just said list your ten favorite movies, I don't think this would be in my top ten favorite movies. But when you watch it, you realize how great it is. Five stars all the way. Dustin watches it and is starting to make a case. It's just. In the cultural zeitgeist, you're right. It's just out there, and it sticks with you. Yeah, it's the, it's that mm-hmm. Trojan rabbit that just sneaks in there. Well, maybe if we built a giant wooden badger. Now, what do we do now? <laughs> Galahad, Lancelot, <laughs> and myself are going to sneak out and stab everybody when they're asleep. How's that going to work? <laughs> Lancelot, oh. oh yes, <laughs> this, this sad, slow expression. Yes. yes. Which is the expression you're about to give me because I, I'm going to give this four stars. Oh, gosh, you... I think that's higher than I expected. Russell is setting the record for being wrong tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I really do enjoy this movie. I don't believe you. <laughs> he wasn't I, I, wrong about revisiting the Knights of Knee. Like, like, like the, there are things, like, even even the, the, the movies that exist among the stars, there are parts of it that are, objectively, must be worse than others. Uh, so, yeah, he wasn't wrong about everything. And I, I still think that's a high rating from the way he was talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm 
I, I really enjoy this. I, I give Life of Brian four and a half stars. That's 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 the difference. <sighs> that's to, to bring it full circle. So, <laughs> I, where are my swords? I mean, it's more unified and it has a more concrete plot. That's uh, it does have sketches that are written into it, but it's it's all one big thing that keeps building better. And also the idea that Christ was just some guy named Brian has a general premise is hilarious. Yeah, the next door neighbor. The premise is really good. It's, it's it's and is so unique so yeah uh, anyway enough about life of brian i i do really enjoy it i, I own it i i am holding it up to say i am right now I'm, I'm i'm it's not chad's still shaking his head like that's not enough i am i am displeased it's a two disc advanced special edition yes i i will i will say need to you after this podcast and You'll need villagers to come up. Why are you saying knee to that old woman? Are you saying knee to that old woman? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Chad, I think this is your territory. I think you need to help me pick a scary movie. Do you like scary movies? I've been known to dabble from time to time, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, option one, Carrie from 1976. Carrie White, a shy, friendless teenage girl who is sheltered by her domineering religious mother, unleashes her telekinetic powers after being humiliated by her classmates. Option two, Psycho from 1960. A Phoenix secretary embezzles $40,000 from her employer's client and goes on a run and checks into a remote hotel run by a young man under the domination of his mother. And option three, The Omen from 1976. There's two movies here from 1976. Uh, the Omen. Mysterious deaths are surrounding an American ambassador. Could the child that he is raising actually be the Antichrist? The devil's own son? I actually just rewatched American Psycho. So I think it's time to go back to the inspiration. 1960s Psycho. <laughs> yes, and that is the worst IMDb description for this movie. Everything else was very, very close. Psychos, it's just like, yeah, embezzlement. Embezzlement, yeah. I'm all about motels and embezzlement, yeah. It's, <laughs> yes. This sounds like a pleasant movie. All right. Yeah. What could go wrong? Yeah. Is this our first, first Hitchcock? Yes. No. Yeah, it is. If you go back on our Patreon, you can get a uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, but... Yes. Uh, this is our first one for the actual podcast. Uh, All right. Yeah, for, for the free listeners. It's about time. Yeah. If that was ever an organic plug for, to become a Patreon yes. member, I'd say that was it. Pay us to hear old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to know what the show was like before Dustin or Chad came on board and the show got better? <laughs> you can pay money and find out. one. <laughs> Do you want to know what the show was like before we had a consistent outline? <laughs> you can find out. All right. No, anyway, thank you guys so much. And thank you all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. And thank you all of Arthur's Roundtable, too, for this one. Because uh, we invite you to reach out and subscribe to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Those ratings and review and subscriptions help others find the show. And they're the number one thing you can do to help us out. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And as we mentioned before... Go to our Patreon page to support us at www.patreon.com forward slash, not backslash, forward slash, Retro Movie Roundtable. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? Look, you're getting shot and that's it. It'll take you time to get to the next town, especially if you're limping.